Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, hey. Steve. Shock jock Steve Price. I don't like shock jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. Mark Allen was a good enough golfer to turn professional, his boyhood dream. But he never quite made it overseas, so Mark turned to a media career back in Australia talking sport. Then a chance encounter with a respected Melbourne medical specialist on a golf course naturally changed his life in a matter of minutes. Mark Allen had a cancer battle on his hands. This is Mark's story for On The Record. Former golfer turned radio host Mark Allen is celebrating after receiving the all clear in his battle with cancer. Allen was diagnosed with bowel cancer, which later spread to his lungs. It was stage four and his chances of survival were slim. I know where they found the second tumour in my lung, it was a millimetre away from being inoperable. So I'm very, very lucky that I went in when I did. Mark Allen, the former Australian professional golfer and current radio broadcaster, had an incredible life story as a sportsman turned media performer, but his health issues, surviving a brutal battle with deadly cancer, takes his life story, I think, to the next level. Mark, I'm sure, was pretty typical of most men about his age and generation, a bit like me. They considered themselves bulletproof. Now, look, I've obviously never played professional sport, but I imagine the locker room banter, especially at, say, something like the American PGA level, was a group of guys at the top of their game. But sadly, the sport has seen great players cut down by cancer. You only need to think of the uh, story of the Australian Jared Lyle, a mate of Mark's. So this, on the latest edition of On The Record, welcomes Mark Allen. Mark, great to catch up with you, mate. Good on you, Pricey. Thank you. Looking forward to a chat. How's your health at the minute right now? I'm feeling great. Uh, you know, things have finally started bouncing my way, fine as, as far as luck's concerned. Um, you know, this time last year, uh, I was, you know, I was a mess. I had uh, lost my bag on my stomach and I'd lost so much weight I could barely recognise myself in the mirror. Um, and things just slowly got better. And the doctors assured me they would. I, at the time, I thought they might have been bullshitting the truth. Yeah. I thought that might have been the way they speak to all patients. But, um, you know, they kept on reminding me how things had actually gone my way. So as far as luck was concerned, it was on my side. Um, and because of my age, you know, I was 50 last year, 51 at the moment. Because of my age, um, I had a fighting chance. And, you know, to be back at the golf course and be able to walk the course carrying my clubs and shoot you know, back to almost uh, half-decent scores and get my handicap down below scratch again. I w- if you told me that was going to happen this time last year, I would never have believed you. You've always struck me as being particularly mentally strong. Is that something you reflect on? I mean, clearly, to get to where you did in your sport and golf's such a mm. mental, mental game, you have to uh, mentally be tough anyway. But do you think that helped? Yep, yep. And I, I wasn't blessed with a lot of talent as a kid. You know, there was... When I came through, there were guys like Bradley Hughes who was, you know, shooting 62s at a very young age, and John Wade used to shoot 66 at Victoria Golf Club when he was 15 years old. I was nowhere near those guys. So those guys were who were blessed with talent. And when I look back on my golf career, the, the proudest thing um, for me is the amount of hard work I put in. Um, you know, I used to have a bag with basically 100 balls in it, and you know, some days I would have hit 700 balls. And I used to think to myself, come on, just one more. Let's do it again and try and concentrate my way through one more bag of 100 balls. Uh, you know, I used to wag school to be able to do that sort of stuff. So that was a 
Yeah, I, I felt like it was my only way out. So I look back on those times and I look back on, you know, standing at, at that putting green at Honeyvale Golf Club until 10 o'clock at night and not going home until I'd hold 50 in a row, basically. Would not go home. And it was getting colder and colder and the green was getting bumpier and bumpier and then, you know, I'd have to change the pace of my putt so the ball would stay straight instead of bumping all over the place. But I wouldn't leave until I hold whatever my goal was. And I look back on those times and, and I'm absolutely certain that got me over the line to where I could at least compete with, you know, some of the better players in the world. Mark, am I right when I said at the start that the, the last thing on the minds of the, the world's best golfers, I mean, certainly those that you were mixing with on the PGA Tour would have been, look, one day I might get cancer? Oh, not even close. You know, that's... The one thing about golf, it's a, it's an enormous pyramid to climb, you know, to be that number one golfer, to be the top 10, to be the top 100 in the world. I never got to the top 100 in the world, not, not even close really. But to be that good, your confidence levels are off the chart. And, you know, you, you've, you saw how Greg Norman dealt with people going to the top. He was a prickly character and he was a prickly character because he just felt like he was better than everybody else. And, you know, I look back, and even though some of the other players, you know, like Finty and Wayne Grady, some of those guys in the media, they never portrayed that, what Greg did. Greg, Greg couldn't get rid of it. But socially, with Finty and Grady, mate, they were, they were killers inside. They were so mentally advanced, and they had a way of conveying that to younger players on the way through. And that's something I'll always remember. You know, even someone like Mike Clayton. Mike Clayton, he didn't win as much as the other guys, but my God, just his ability to exude confidence and, in a way, you know, toughness, I guess, uh, for, for someone who didn't putt so well, but to continually put himself up on top of that leaderboard. And, you know, other players like Roger Davis. Roger Davis is a ripper. Roger Davis is a beauty. I, I, I played with Roger a couple of times. He, he didn't hit the ball very well at all. Yeah, he continually shot 66. He did these heel cuts. And then he knew he was a bad hitter of the golf ball. Not a bad hitter. He, he knew he didn't hit the ball like Greg Norman. But my God, he used to think like like a, like a Superman. Um, and that was always interesting. That was always an interesting test case. And even me, you know, I, I knew when I got on the tee and, and played in the last, you know, I was in the third last group of the, in the Australian Open in 1992 in the third last group in the last round of the Masters, playing with some really good players. But I just knew that I had, I would walk on that tee with a chest out because I knew I'd look at the bloke and I just knew that he had not done the work that I had done. And I think that in professional sport, particularly golf, probably tennis as well, just the pyramid you have to climb uh, internationally, I think that carries you a long way. And I heard you in the intro, I was, yeah, I was bulletproof. I, I really felt like I was a bulletproof kid. I didn't get sick. And um, what happened? Uh, at the back end of 2018, it was a complete surprise. I remember first hearing you, um, and you know where this story is going back on radio, way back in 3RW Breakfast Days <laughs> with uh, Ross Stevenson and, and John Burns, yeah, yeah. Um, and they were asking, I think you were at the Masters reporting back to the, the, the program. British Open. British, British Open, Open, yeah, and you were talking about Tiger Woods and running into him in the urinal, uh, <laughs> telling that famous story about, uh, about his appendage, yeah. but... How intimidating is it meeting someone like Tiger Woods? It was always great. It's funny when he uh, – look, I'm going back 
over 20, over 20, 25 years ago, Australia had the greatest mini tour in golf, in the world of golf. You know, the US tour was number one. Europe was uh, then number two. It was probably Japan. And then the fourth best tour was Australia. We had 23 or 24 tournaments when I turned pro in 1990. Um, and the big tours used to finish up in October. So the best players to keep their games going, they would all come down to Australia and play. You know, there's there's some old highlights going around Twitter at the moment. It's, um, it's a fellow named Rob. He's doing a great job. And you go back and you, you look at the standard of the player that were coming back. And, and it really was, you know, incredible, incredible that that sort of stuff was happening. And, well, Kerry Packer um, used to convince Jack Nicholas to come out here. Oh, yeah. What, what was Jack doing? He's doing nothing. Sitting in, uh, probably in Florida back in those days or Ohio. He might have moved to Florida. He, he'd come down and play, um, you know, the beautiful tournaments in summer down here. So when Tiger Woods first turned pro, um, I think he turned pro in 1996, and he came down in 97 to play in the Australian Open, the Australian at Sydney, and I was paired right behind him. Um, and for what, whatever reason, whatever, uh, the Australian Golf Club. Yep. So I paired, yeah. Know it and, well. And, we, we were actually tight. I was playing, well, tight at the cup. Um, and I thought, oh, here we go. I'm going to play with Tiger Woods for sure. Um, and I didn't. But, you know, again, I was I, I was practicing next to him. And then he came back. And he, because, of, you know, I was just a familiar face to him, <laughs> to tell you the truth. And he was, a, he was just an ordinary guy. You know, at that stage, he was getting in his car and going home. And they'd stop past a, a McDonald's to get a Big Mac because that's what he was eating back in those days. And, he was quite a normal character, um, but I tell you what, I did, I did get to see this guy warm up, and you know, uh, I used to, I used to hear what was going on. He was practicing right behind me a couple of t- the first early times that I saw him practice, and you know, he, you know, when you hear the garbage, you hear, oh, he's golf, this guy makes a different sound when he hits the ball, and you know, this, he, he really did, and it was just a, it was just. The reason he was making it, it was the same noise every time. He was hitting the ball in the middle of the club every single time with the same divot every single time, these little beautiful $5 note divots that he was taking. Um, and, you know, there was one golf course where, you know, I'd finish my warm-up and my driver was basically one bouncing into the back fence and I'd turn around and watch him hit his long irons and his three-iron was doing exactly the same thing as my driver and I wasn't a, I wasn't a short hitter back in those days. Um, he was... He was one bouncing. His, his three wood would hit the fence halfway up, and his driver. It was like there was no fence there at all. But it, it wasn't just that he was hitting the driver over the fence. He was hitting the ball over the fence at the same point every single time. Sometimes with a fade, and sometimes with a draw. All done deliberately. Is that he natural was, ability or learned ability? Uh, half and half. You know, to to get to that level, you know, like someone like Greg Norman and. Uh, Tiger Woods, Dustin Johnson, probably these days, Rory McIlroy, uh, amazing ability as kids. But to go to that particular level, that's hard work. And all those guys had it. Greg Norman was a, a hard worker, so was Rory McIlroy. And they tell me that Tiger Woods worked harder than anybody as a kid growing up. And you know, to take that natural ability and turn it into golfing magic, um, it's, it's incredible to watch. They say, uh, you know, sometimes it's disappointing to to meet your sporting heroes. I've never found that. I mean, I, you know, people like Peter Brock and Hooksy, mm. David Hooks, Lee Matthews, people like that, Todd Woodbridge. I mean, uh, Mick Fanning said hello to me one day and I thought, 
I nearly fell over. Nick Fanning knows who I am. <laughs> I was actually very impressed by that. Was, uh, I had a real fanboy moment. But uh, what's it like meeting the big names in, in world golf? I mean, did you find most of them okay? Oh, I was really lucky. I, I, I haven't had a bad experience. So I remember really the first time I met Greg Norn was at the 1993 Australian Masters and I was playing in the third last group and he was playing in the second last group and we were sitting in the old locker room at, at Huntingdale and his locker was just up the aisle from where I was. And I remember he he used to get his clothes sent to the golf course. So he turned up in his street clothes and then he would get dressed in his locker. That's the way they did it in those days. Anyway, he put his shirt on and then he took his vest out. And his vest, it was pink at the front and black and white stripes on the back. It was the ugliest vest I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and and he was complaining um, to his management, he got oh come on, guys, you really want me to walk? Anyway, I had to giggle, you know. I, 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 I never seen anything like it, and I, I was kind of sitting there with a big smile on my face, laughing. And he looked at me and said, "What do you think of this vest?" And I just looked at him and said, "That's the worst vest I've ever seen in my life." And he had a laugh, and from that point forward, you know, he was always great. You know, I, I remember qualifying for the nineteen ninety nine. British Open, I hadn't done anything for a long time. My, my golf, you know, I got to a, a really good level in the summer of 92, 93. Um, and after that, I was trying to fix up my golf swing because lots of people were, and I basically got lost. And in 99, I managed to lead the qualifying for the British Open. And that's why Ross, and, it was Dean Banks. That's why they got me on the radio show because I hadn't done anything for so long, but I'd led the qualifying in the British Open, which, is a, which was a big deal. You know, I was having a putt on that putting green. And Greg Norman came up. I hadn't spoken to him for years, but he remembered me, you know, from the tour and probably from that moment. Um, and he came up and just gave me a little elbow and said, hey, well done for qualifying. I saw you let it. And it was, you know, he was great. Nice. So all those guys, are, you know, I've been so lucky. How big an influence on Australian golf was Greg Norman? I mean, it was huge, oh. wasn't it? I mean, the whole country would get up uh, to watch him Sadly, quite often, crumble in the in the final round. The whole nation would go to work depressed because again, Greg Norman had fallen at the last last hurdle. I'll tell you how big he was uh, at Huntingdale Golf Club when Greg Norman was the Tiger Woods of the world. He was. I mean, Greg Norman was Tiger Woods before Tiger Woods was Tiger Woods. Hundred uh, percent. He at at Huntingdale Golf Club where I was a member. There was a sixteen year wait to get into the club. These days, you could walk into the manager's office and walk out with the membership at, at Huntingdale. And, and that was the same for all the sandbelt clubs around Melbourne. You know, Metropolitan, I reckon, had a 20-year wait list there at one stage. God knows what was going on at Royal Melbourne and, and some of the others. So the influence of that man getting people to driving ranges, going and buying some of the ugliest cobra clubs that the world has ever seen, that was a miracle how we got people to buy those clubs. Um, you know, he was, he was a magnet. And, you know, when you look at, at the old tapes, like I said, there's a bloke called Rob Williamson. Just uh, if you're on Twitter, just go and follow this character. He's posting all these, he used to caddy back in the old days, and he's posting all these tapes of, you know, the golf in the 90s. And the latest one he's doing, I think is the 1987 or 1988 Australian Masters. And it's five deep all the way on, on some of the golf holes, following, you know, Mark O'Meara is in one group and it's five deep. Greg Norman is probably six or seven or eight deep for him. Um, you know, when you go back and you look at his effect on just getting people out of the house and to the golf course to watch him play was electric. And 
Yeah, I know Peter Thompson was the old guy uh, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, but still to this day, I think the man who's had the most influence on any sport in Australia would be Greg Norman and his influence on golf. Yeah, I don't think that's too big a call, Mark. I mean, remember Sunday afternoons, you would have been growing up and the Seven Network would run golf and drop their news because of the yep. closing holes hadn't been completed. Yeah, that's right. Little Sandy later, Roberts yeah. would be there and Peter Landy, unbelievable. Yeah, that's right. Um, Bruce McAvaney, I mean, you know, the times I was playing, he was, he was calling me and it, it was enormous. You know, they used to bring Peter Ellis down to do commentary for the Masters and you know, Rhett Laylord, all these, you know, wonderful voices of golf used to come down for the Australian Masters and the Australian Open. And, you know, I, I, I do wish that we did went the way that South Africa did and put our tournaments alongside the European Tour way back then. I just think the pathways these days, you know, some of the kids I see growing up as 18 and 19 and 20-year-olds and what they're doing around the world now with a golf. They just don't have the pathway anymore that we had as kids. I'll give you an example. In 1992, 93, I finished 13th on the order of merit, and that was just a summer order of merit. That got me all the way to the last stage of the US tour school. So I avoided stage one, stage two, I got all the way to stage three, which got me, um, uh, it was called the Hogan tour back then. I missed my card by, 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 by uh, six shots or something, so kept the big card on the US tour. But I had a secondary tour card, and off I went. I was playing there in 94 and 95 and wherever else I could play. These days, you've got kids who were truly better than I was back in those days, and they've got nowhere to go because the pathways have dried up. So unfortunately, our, our tournaments don't provide a pathway anymore, and I hope with you know what's going on in the world at the moment, I really do hope that we put the Australian Open in February and the Australian PGA and the Vic Open and all the other big tournaments and just go ahead and do it and put it there and be a part of that European tour. Because I just know it's going, we're going to see so many, so many more Australians with talent get on that tour. Now might be the time to do it, given what we're going through. We talked about mental strength. How does a Greg Norman, with the ability he had, uh, collapse so spectacularly? We're talking US Masters here. Yeah. How does that happen to someone with that ability? I mean, that says a lot about uh, the mental aspect of the game of golf, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm sympathetic to Greg. Uh, he tells amazing he, he tells an amazing story about that week, and, and I'll, I'll I'll fill you in because I don't think too many people have heard it. Um, he in, in rounds one, two, and three, he wasn't playing as well as he would have liked to be leading a tournament like that by I think he was leading by six or seven shots. He says that he was aiming at the center of the green, and every time we'd look up, you know, he, he was missing shots, and they were going close. He just kept on hole and putt. And he had this amazing lead. Anyway, he thought he was going to win that tournament that week, you know, but he still needed a very solid round the next day. And, you know, when you're playing, when you're just a little bit off, but things have been bouncing your way. The ball's been bouncing his way, basically. You're still, you're not comfortable. You're never comfortable in that situation. His wife, Laura, unbeknownst to him, sent the jet back to Florida from Augusta and picked up all of his mates. Anyway, so Greg doesn't know about this. He wakes up on the Sunday morning of the tournament, and Laura opens the door, and 20 of his best friends come marching in, basically celebrating that he's won the Masters. Uh Uh-oh. Now, I'm not sure how you'd feel about that, 
but I would, as a golfer, want to keep everything exactly the same. Mm. I want to change anything. You know, if I had wheat fix and two pieces of Vegemite toast and a Milo for breakfast, that's what I'm doing. I'm not opening the door to 20 yahoos, basically, you know, cheering that he's won the, the green jacket already. Um, so I'm not sure many people understand what that would do to a golfer's psyche, but, you know, I'm not even sure you can blame the 78 on that. But well, still, there's, you, there's something for you anyway. You stand there on the first tee and think, oh, I wish the wife hadn't done that. I'm not home yet. Oh. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> it's a bit like, uh, you know, the, the Richmond of old, Spicy, the Richmond of old. Here we you go. Know, if, Here we you go. might have had a five-goal lead on on Hawthorne at three-quarter time and somebody in the crowd goes, oh, we're home. Gee, you know, I'm going to say with Collingwood, I'd look up and go, shut up! Yeah, Don't right. say that. Yeah, get and 10 goals in front. Been... You always say, no, nope, we're not there yet. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I reckon with, with all of Greg's, you know, all the times that somebody hold a shot on him, you know, Robert Gomez hold a full seven of iron of him to win the World Series of Golf there at one stage. I won a big tournament like that. And then you go Bob Tway, Larry Mize. All these things have happened to him. You know, for someone to say we're home, basically, and invite all your friends around, oh, that was a tough one. Yes, he has moved on. Wife-wise, yeah. since that since that time, yeah, a couple, couple times. <laughs> We're not suggesting that was the reason. Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about your incredible battle uh, with cancer. It's been uh, so hard for you, I know. But take me back uh, to Kingston Heath and and Dr. Jeffrey Wells, and tell, yeah. tell us how important it was that you were slotted uh, to play. I think you were playing with him on that day. Explain what happened. Yeah, that's right. Well, six six months before that. Um, I was going to the toilet and when I wiped my bum, there'd be a little bit of red blood. And I went to my GP and she had a look around. Um, and she said, listen, I can't see anything. You haven't lost any weight. All your bloods are fine. It, I would imagine it's just hemorrhoids. And she gave me some hemorrhoid cream. So, you know, three days later, the bleeding stopped. It wasn't bleeding that much anyway, but it, it had completely stopped. Um, it started again, but I still had hemorrhoid cream. So I didn't go back to the doctor. I just put the hemorrhoid cream back in and away. Away it went again. So I thought, oh, it's just hemorrhoids. Um, in December, it was the last week of, of radio. And, you know, it's like you, you've got six or seven weeks off and I'm driving in the car, I'm driving to work and on the 3AW news service, there was a there was a, um, a news story saying that Switzerland was number one and Australia number two in fixing up bowel cancer. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm, I'm still bleeding just a little bit. I'd better call my GP and just go back and, and make an appointment. So I did. So I went the very next day, which was a Tuesday, um, and she said, listen, what we'll do is um, we'll book in a colonoscopy. And because it was uh, Christmas, everyone put their colonoscopy for when they're having their holidays. So when she booked me in, it was you know very early in December. She booked me in for really late in January. So I didn't mind. So eight because, weeks you know, later or something. Nine, nine weeks later. It was a really long time. Um, so it didn't bother me because, you know, she told me that my bloods were good and that I hadn't lost any weight. And she said, no, it's not cancer. So it didn't bother me. You know, I went to golf the next day. I'd finished up and there was Dr. Jeffrey Wells. He was just about to start his round and he owned a horse called Snitty Kitty. And I thought I'd just go over and ask how Snitty Kitty's going because I've been winning money on Snitty Kitty for following his horse. And he goes, um, you guys look, we've put it so on you knew him. for a little bit. You knew him. Yeah, I knew him really well. Yeah, I knew him quite well. And I, I remember thinking, I was actually bragging to him after about, I said, hey, I'm going in for a colonoscopy, like, you know, 
I'm a great guy for doing that. And he asked why, and I told him the reasons why. He goes, "Oh, yeah, yeah, don't wait, don't wait. Let's let's get you in." And he called his doctor mates, and he got me in um, on the Monday, and then away we went from there. And uh, we had the colonoscopy on the Thursday after that. And I remember Professor Ian Jones came and just said, hey, listen, we've found something, mate, and it looks pretty likely. And then a test after that, and before I knew it, I, I, I was into hospital to get bowel cancer removed from my lung. So I went from being extremely healthy at 49 years old, practicing because I thought I was going to go and play a little bit of golf in my 50s on, on the Australian Seniors Tour and you know, get back into shape. And I remember waking up and my wife coming to see me and I just felt like I'd been carved to pieces. And, you know, we were crying together because it just didn't seem right. It was like a bad dream. I went from being as healthy as healthy and joking at the golf club with a doc and I'm getting that colonoscopy. Ten days later being in hospital, having my, my, my lung ripped apart. So it was it was a very scary time for us, an so, extremely scary time. So, I mean, your your story resonates so much with so many uh, so many people. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid sixties, just had my mm. blood tests done, no no dramas, everything seems to be fine. Haven't had any bleeding or anything. Um, but at my age, would you suggest someone like me goes and gets a colonoscopy, or do you? No, oh, no question. Really? Yeah, the colon, the colon. Oh. Just go and get it anyway. You've got these things called polyps that develop, and some are cancerous and some aren't. And if they find these polyps in your in your bowel, they just they can knock them off in the same surgery. And then you're right. Well, I think they tell me five or six years. You don't have to worry about going back. And the bowel cancer is the bad one because if it if you get a a cancer like mine was in my rectum, mine was ten centimeters up in my rectum, and when I look back, um, it was taking me three goes to empty in the morning. But I just thought it was because I was dropping the kids um, at their school and then I was getting a coffee. I just thought the coffee was making me go to the loo again. But it wasn't. It was just that, you know, the, the poo in my rectum was filling up. I was my, my, The sensors were telling me that I was full. So often it was because the tumour was blocking it. So if, if you get a tumour in your colon in the middle, halfway up your lower intestine or something, you don't get those signals. You get nothing. You might not even bleed. You mightn't even bleed. And because that colon of yours, you know, food gets extracted through or, you know, the goodness of the food gets into your body, you can also take the cancer into body parts very, very quickly. You, you don't even know. But if you just go and have one colonoscopy and they get rid of all the polyps and you're as good as gold and you don't have to worry about it, you just don't have to worry. So, yeah, even if, even if I'm not bleeding at 60, just for the hell of it, I would go and get a colonoscopy knowing what I know today. So you have the original operation. It takes part of your lung and part of your yep. rectum as well. And yep. uh, they tell you at that stage that this should be okay, that you'll be clear? Yeah, yeah, sort of. Um, we had to do a lot of chemotherapy. Um, we had to do some pre- pre- precautionary chemotherapy. They also use radiation um, on the tumour in my rectum because they say that you did the radiation and that helps it not coming back in the future uh, and, and once we've done all that um, the very first you know you, you get checks every three months um, after that for the next three years and then it goes down to six but the very first check they did after all the operations we went back and they found another one in the other side of my lungs 
Um, they said it was the best way possible, though, because it was a, a nice big one and there was nothing else in my body from head to toe, which was a relief. And they took that one out. And then three months later, the very first one they came back, it said, hey, listen, we've seen something right next to the scar. We're not sure what it is. It's come up hot in your PET scan. Um, we think it might just be scar tissue. You know, so you're on 10 dogs as well for another two months. We went back and had that one checked and that's you know, now going ice cold, so that's good. So it just goes on and on and on. But um, thankfully, we did the radiation um, uh, on the initial tumour, which was in the rectum, and then they've done the pre- precautionary chemotherapy. So I took pills with the radiation and then I was on the drip with the second lot. And it's all designed to keep it away. So, look, at the moment, things are good, um, but you just keep on ticking away and it's <laughs> always in the back of your mind. But I feel confident and the doctors will feel really confident that we've got off to the best possible start. How hard is it when the phone rings and it's the doctor and you've got that dreaded sense that they're going to tell you something you don't want to hear? Yeah. These days you get the phone call. I remember the first time I went back, or the second time I went back. So they found one and then it's the second time I went back. And I know this is an important one because I find more than it's basically riddled through my body and, and I'm cooked. I'm in hospital for a long time. And I was the only one in the waiting room. So I see I was the only one sitting there. And as I got closer and closer to the time, I found myself rocking backwards and forwards in the chair, you know, because it, it means so much, not just the, to your family, but to, you know, to your way of life. And somehow the doctor came through this hole that, you know, the, uh, the cooks and the cleaners use, and he looked at me and goes, oh, Marco, hey, all clear, all clear. He just gave me a thumbs up and went in. And, you know, the, I'm not going to say those beads of sweat on my forehead or anything, but the amount of relief that, you know, it's almost like a, thank goodness, at that point in time. So, you know, people who have gone through this will, will, will know. And, you know, even uh, Dr. Peter Gibbs, who, who just delivers this news daily, he really understands that um, the, that half an hour before the phone is supposed to ring or the half an hour before you're supposed to walk into the doctor's office, um, you know, you, you do. You feel a little bit like a dead man walking, to tell you the truth. And then if you get the good news, it's a big relief. How hard was it to tell your wife and children? First time, um, yeah, really hard. Yeah, it was. I, I remember, I remember. I told Trish about the tumor in my rectum, and and that was okay. Then the first thing they do is they they get to the PET scan. So three days later, um, I did a PET scan, and I was driving along in the car, you know, trying to get my head around that I had something in my rectum. And then the doctor came and said, "Hey, listen, we got some more bad news." Uh, you've got a big tumour uh, right next to your windpipes and your arteries in your lungs. And, uh, you know, time froze. I thought, oh, what are you talking about? And he goes, listen, you're really lucky because we can see a little gap. And when you, when you, see, the, when you see it on the scan, it's a one millimetre gap between that tumour in my lung and uh, my windpipe and, and the arteries. And if it gets in there, it's inoperable. And I'm dead. Uh, and the doctors, they, they tell me that. Dead. D-E-D. Because once it gets into the windpipe, it just, you know, your lungs just push it through your whole body. And once it gets into your blood, you're absolutely cooked. So they had me straight in. And hearing that news, I, I pulled the car over and I, I didn't know what to do. 
I, honestly, I didn't know how I was going to tell Trish. I didn't know. I didn't want the kids to know. And I, I remember I've, I've told this story a few times, but I um I asked uh, I asked Google what sort of a chance because doctor said you're a stage four cancer patient. We need to act really quickly. And I said, um, "Hey Google, what uh, what chances do you have when you're a stage four bowel cancer patient?" Uh, patient? And reading what came up, you know, five percent of people make it past five years. Then that that you know, four or five minutes in the car, sitting there on the side of the road, uh, you know, you start. I was thinking about funeral songs and <laughs> just crazy, silly stuff. You know, crazy stuff. And you know, I called Trish straight away and. I'm in hospital next week, you know, in four days, in three days' time. So, did, yeah, you, it, did you ever mentally get to the point of, of darkness of saying, why, why me? I mean, what have I done to deserve this? Did you get to that point? Does everyone um, get to that point? Or did you yeah. try and avoid it? Uh, initially, initially, it was a why me. But as the story progressed, you know, if, if, I, if I didn't have an interest in Snitty Kitty, then I wouldn't have asked off Wells about it I wouldn't have told him about the you know the the colonoscopy I was due to have in, in nine weeks time and if Doc Wells was playing golf in the morning instead of the afternoon that day then I would never have seen him and then they find the second tumour and it's one millimetre away from being inoperable so I felt you know there's, there's another bit of luck and yeah, well, if you'd, never taken, if you'd never taken up golf you would have never met the doctor because you probably didn't hang out with doctors in whatever else you were doing yeah, exactly right. You know, if, if Doc Wells was just a GP, he mightn't have had the friends where he had, you know, got me to cut line. I mean, I, I cut through the line. You know, most people, I guess, you don't have a doctor friend like that. Sorry, mate, you just wait for your nine weeks and, you know, there's no issues. I'll strong as an ox and bulletproof, like you're saying in, in the intro. Um, you, you know, I would have given it a second thought, but, you know, he got me through the lines and got me in and, Every step along the way just felt like luck, luck, luck. So I've been lucky in that re- in that regard. You were what about six weeks from death, probably um, mm. because of that one millimeter. So you've been extraordinarily lucky. Mm. You're now cancer clear. How mm. important uh, in this whole fight uh, have been people like your wife, Trish, obviously your children, but people like David Schwartz, who you worked for, with for so long on the radio. Mm. How important has it had to have? Mates and support. Yeah, Ox was unbelievable. Um, and again, I was lucky I had the job I did. You know, it wasn't like I was out digging ditches or I wasn't a plumber. I wasn't an electrician. I, I, they weren't hard yards. You know, my, my role was to come into work, talk about sport and have a bit of fun and try and put a smile on each other's face. And hopefully if we're smiling, then other people are smiling. That's the way radio works. Or at least Ox and, and my show works. That's, that's the way we do it. So that was incredible. Uh, David Schwartz was amazing all the way through. Uh, the doctors told us not to tell many people and not to tell our kids, and that was a smart thing to do. Why? We didn't tell the kids until later. Why not? Because um, they just they were the wrong age. You know, they, they didn't understand cancer, and we just told them that Dad was getting a couple of lumps cut out, you know. And, and uh, looking back, that was a really good decision. I'm glad we did that. But to have those people around us, and Stephen Beers was amazing. You know, when I had to tell work, because at that stage, a radio station called Macquarie Sport Radio had only just started. I had to tell work that you know, I was a stage four cancer patient. I was going to be in and out of hospital all, all year. 
didn't blink. You know, 3AW and Macquarie, uh, which is now Nine Radio, they, they did not blink. They just, you know, they got Matty Grantland in to fill in for me. And Stephen Beer said, listen, come in the work as much as you can. We want you just to get your mind off it. At the time, I thought, like, yeah, I'm not sure you understand what I'm going through here. But, you know, Stephen Beers' words probably um, were, well, they were not probably, was brilliant. You know, coming in the work and doing as much as I did, even though, you know, I had a costume bag hanging off me for half a year and going through chemotherapy and I didn't really feel, once the lights went on and once we started talking about it, then, you know, that, that part of my life disappeared for a little while. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the show, I would literally collapse, you know, just, you know, take some deep breaths and try and work out how I was going to get home. But I'm really glad I did all that stuff. And, you know, if anyone's listening with, with a battle on their hands and they are able to go to work and it may be stressful, it might be taxing, but if you can get through a day's work and and somehow get your mind off it, I found that extremely helpful all the way through. Is there ever a time when they say to a recovered cancer patient, that's it, all clear, won't come back again? After five years. So if we can stay clear for five years, they reckon they've got less chance of getting it than you, which is... Uh, thanks for <laughs> I don't that. want to wish that upon any... No, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> but, but I'm looking forward to that day. And How many years to know, go? Uh, four years to go. Four, four and a bit years to go. Mm. So... Look, I'm feeling really good. Like I said, the doctors and surgeons, they can't believe where, I'm at, where I am at the moment. They can't believe I'm walking the golf course. They can't believe I'm controlling my bowel because, you know, I was incontinent. Once, I took, once they took the bag off me, I was incontinent for a long time, for three weeks, so for three months, um, which was really, that was really hard. That was a battle. That's probably the hardest thing to, to get through, to tell you the truth. To be always running off to the toilet, and, you know, you'd be in the middle of dinner and you're there with the kids, you're, sorry, and you'd run off. You know, that was horrible being incontinent. So I feel for people in, the, in those situations. But to now be able to control myself, um, feel comfortable getting out of the house, be able to walk the golf course, like I said before, um, go for a walk, go for a run, uh, try and do all those things I used to do. I don't, don't seem to have the wind capacity these days, but it doesn't matter. I, you know, you, you get out and you go. Um, I'm just, I feel really grateful. We're talking to Mark Allen on the record. Just finally, let's leave it on a positive note and let we all hope that your health is going to be great. And when I hang up mm. from you here, I'm going to book, book a colonoscopy. So thanks for that advice. What sort of shapes Australian golf in? I mean, we see uh, Jason Day recently finished in the top six in a PGA tournament in yep. the US. Mark Leishman's been in reasonable form. What's, what sort of shape is Australian golf in right now? Uh, it's in pretty good look. Look, it's in very good shape. You know, we've got some good golfers in the girls as well. We've got Minty Lee and Sue Suo and 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 the young lass who won the US PGA last year. And how bad am I? Because I can't remember her name at the moment. But we'll fix that up in the pick. Yeah. So the girls are going pretty well. Um, I do worry about the pathways. That's that's my only concern. You know, we we've got so many good players coming through as amateurs, and we've got golf courses in this country that inspire people to play golf, which is the most important thing. Um, if we can sort out our pathways for the boys and the girls, and I think the easiest way to do that is to be a part of the second biggest tour in the world uh, for the for the guys. And, you know, it's not, it's not out of the question to be um, part of the uh, US tour for the girls, like the, like the Victorian Open is. So if we can get those pathways set up, where kids in this country can win some money and go because the Australian peso pricey in the Northern Hemisphere doesn't take you very far, as you'd well know. 
Um, if we can set up pathways to where you play well in Australia on European tour events or US sort of tour events for the girls, that gets you get your fingers and claws into those big tours uh, and a place to play, then I reckon we've got enough talent in this country to where we can really dominate the world scene. But we need, you know, we, it needs to be a shotgun blast, you know. We need a lot of kids over there and then one, two, three or four of them might end up being stars. At the moment with Adam Scott, you know, he's 40-something. Jason Day, he might break apart next week, we'll never know. Um, Mark Leishman's you know, he doesn't quite have the superstardom of those other two, but he's a very consistent performer. I think he, you know, he might trip over the line and win a major. Um, we've got some wonderful players and want some wonderful ability, but just getting our kids over there and set up the go, that's the most important battle for Australian golf at the moment. Mark Allen, it's been a great pleasure to catch up. Thanks for talking to us. Remarkable what a positive mindset can do to beat cancer. Mark Allen, the latest to talk with On The Record.